أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله تبارك وتعالى وسلم على سيدنا محمد سيدنا وسندنا وحبيبنا وشفيعنا ومولانا صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه وأزواجه وذرياته وأهل بيته ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين وبعد Mashallah, we almost finished the chapter regarding the virtues of fasting last week. Uh, and so we have a couple more ahadith. And, uh, you know, this uh, Riyadh al-Salihin is a book of the spiritual teachings of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And um, oftentimes the exercises and practices that are described therein are individuals for an individual person to practice in their uh, journey to Allah Ta'ala between them and Allah uh, but that doesn't mean that a person's spirituality is disconnected with the way that they deal with others. Uh, in fact, it's quite the opposite. And there are some s- shortcuts once a person is able to muster a certain amount of individual spiritualism inside of themselves. There are some shortcuts that a person can use other people, um, the service of other people in particular, um, and being good to other people in particular. They can use those things in order to progress quickly, in fact, more quickly than they can through their own uh, efforts and their own uh, striving and so this is a chapter re- with regards to that uh, and it's relevant for those who can fast and it's also relevant for those who are unable to fast because fasting as an act of worship is not easy for everybody uh, depending on a person's disposition some people it's very easy for them and some people it's very difficult for them and Zaydin ibn Khalid al-Juhani radiyallahu ta'ala anhu an al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qala man fattara sa'iman kana lahum mithlu ajrihi غير أنه لا ينقص من أجر الصائم شيء رواه الترمذي وقال حديث حسن صحيح زيد بن خالد الجهني the companion of the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم from the قبيلة of Juhayna which is I'm told still intact and still has a great number of members you'll in fact oftentimes see like in Saudi Arabia you'll see the Juhani nisba on people's like name tags and things like that um, that uh, from Wadi Juhayna, that uh, uh, Zayd bin Khalid al-Juhani radiallahu ta'ala anhu narrates from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that uh, the person who provides for the iftar of someone who's fasting, that person will receive the reward of the one who fasted without decreasing from the reward of the one who fasted uh, at all. Uh, and so th- there's a couple of things. One is obviously you receive the reward for fasting even if you don't fast yourself. And so Allah Ta'ala gave people the time and the ability to fast and some people, they don't have that. Some people have the money but they don't have the time or the ability to fast. Some people have the ability to put in the effort to cook for others but they don't have the ability to fast. Some people do all of, all of the above together. And that's the fadl of Allah. He gives to whoever He wills. But there's a door, there's a madkhal, there's an entryway, an entry point for everybody somewhere or another in the, in the equation. And this is actually one of the reasons that mothers have such a high rank in the deen. The reason mothers don't have high, uh, that the, the reason that mothers have a high rank in the deen is not because of girl power. It's not because girls rule or feminism or they had a protest and they, you know, whatever. It's precisely because of what a mother does for her children. That she herself fasts in Ramadan oftentimes. Uh, and if she doesn't, it's because she has to feed, uh, like suckle the children or she's pregnant herself or whatever. Um, and people don't think about this, but our own mothers have like oftentimes, you know, uh, 
fast days that they have left to make up for years afterward because of the difficulty of nursing children and the difficulty of taking care of children. And uh, oftentimes they'll fast through those things as well. And so this is why this is why they have this maqam. It's not just some sort of like identity politics. You know what I mean? Like if you're if you're you know not every immigrant is the same as like you know whatever Cesar Chavez you know, and not every black person is Martin Luther King. Not every woman is like you know. It's not your identity to, to a group, and not every person who goes to the Masjid on Juma is like like the Sahaba radiAllahu anhum. Uh, but it's through the, 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 the amal that a person does that they receive their rank. This is part of a long-standing caution that I have for myself and for others that we don't raise our sons to be fathers, to look forward to being fathers, and we don't raise our daughters to look forward to being mothers. Um, but think about this, that the woman who, who fasts and who takes care of her children, she does so and she's protected from riyat because if a person sponsors the iftar in the masjid, doubt Undoubtedly, there'll be some sort of announcement or du'a or someone will ask who paid for this. And children, you guys don't even care. Your mother will do a million things for you. And you, don't, you, don't, you don't even think about it. You take it for granted. Which means that for the mother, there's no conflict of interest. Rather, uh, she can do the act purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is itself a great, uh, a great vehicle of, of progress in the uh, spiritual path. At any rate, one of the other things that people should think about with this is what is that the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam is incentivizing a civilization in which people value fasting. Why? Because the person who is themselves fasting now is no longer considered to be a time waster, no longer considered to be some sort of whack job. Um, in fact, their act itself becomes like the central point for what is a communal, uh, for, for what is now a communal custom, which is what? which is that the iftar should be provided for and should be fed. Uh, this is one of the most Mubarak gatherings that a Muslim will attend in his life, which is what is the iftar, the suhoor and the iftar of those who fast. I remember when we were in the MSA in the University of Washington, uh, because many people lived on campus or were locals, um, there was not really a whole lot of provision for iftar. And so what happened was myself and a couple of brothers who lived in the dorms, we decided that we'll just have iftar together. Whoever wants to eat from the cafeteria can grab their food from the cafeteria. Whoever brings their own food or gets it from outside, we'll just sit together and we'll eat our iftar. We'll pray maghrib together in a place in the dorms and we'll sit together and make our iftar. There are a couple of pious brothers who had cars. They would just go to the masjid and those who were left behind, uh, we just have iftar together. That started with uh, three people. By maybe five or six days, it ended up becoming 30. And it became such a big thing that literally, like for years after that, hundreds of people would gather together. Uh, the administration actually tried to stop it. I said, hey, look, you know, they come. I don't force them to. We're, we don't, you know, speak or anything. It's just a bunch of people sitting together when they eat. I go, if you want to stop it, go ahead. But I have no idea on what basis you're going to stop and who's responsible for any of this, right? And so they finally made a... Uh, a concession to say, okay, fine, we won't like make a big deal out of it. Just make sure you guys clean up after yourself. I go, we already do anyway. Uh, and they said, yeah, we noticed that. And so what would happen is uh, um, people would sit together and they would eat every day. Somebody would bring people from outside the community found out and they would cater their stars. People would get together. They would, you know, be Muslims like as a community, as an ummah. And it was all what? Through fasting, which is an individual deed. 
And I don't know. I mean, I know for years afterward that custom stayed. I don't know if the students at the university still do it or not. But uh, many masajid, this is one of the things that boggles my mind. Completely boggles my mind. Completely, I have no idea how or why any of this happens. But there are many masajid that will actually uh, uh, bar iftars from having the, uh, happening in the masjid. And I have no idea why. And the reasons, the excuses are different. People, people uh, you know, they don't clean up after themselves or whatever. Or people don't, uh, you know, we don't have the money to pay for. So you don't have to pay for anything. Just tell people, come bring your iftar, eat together. You don't have to have even have them eat in the musalla, you know. In some sense, it's better not to eat in the musalla. But just have people who, you know, all you need is like a box of dates and like, you know, tablighi jamaat is mashallah mujtahid imams and like making a meal out of something that a person doesn't really look like at, look at as like a meal. But when you need to, you just, you know, you do what you need to do and that's it. And the simplest of foods, you know, we're the ummah that like made biryani a thing, man. Like this, you literally one day of biryani probably cost like what in the old, like two years ago, maybe $60, maybe because of inflation, $80. You know, people are eating all kinds of wild things like vegetable biryani or whatever. Just like throw some paneer in it or whatever, you know, and like it's, you can make cheap, a large amount of food for a large number of people. And there's always somebody who will do it. I remember when I was imam in the masjid in Chico, California. There was an auntie, she used to work the night shift. What a pious woman. I sometimes envy her reward. She used to work the night shift in a lab. Like people get blood tested in the day and they run them in the lab at night. And, uh, and so she would also fast. She would come at Asr time and she would cook. And she had to leave the masjid like an hour before Maghrib. It was in the summers. Uh, an hour before Maghrib in order to make it to work on time. And she would work basically the whole night. And like come home after Suhoor. And, uh, uh, or around Suhoor time or whatever. And the students, because Chico is a, a college town. And Chico State University is a California State University. Um, so they would ask the kids in the MSA, what do you guys want to eat? And uh, um, they would tell her, and so sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. She'd look up like different recipes, American food, Arab food, Italian, whatever, Mexican. But she'd just look it up and like figure it out. There were one or two aunties that would help her. She'd bring the entire material herself and she would cook it and prepare it and just leave it like in dishes and trays uh, and, and go, Janab, Masjid Committee. Oh, we're going to shut it down. I go, why in the world would you shut it down? So, you know, these kids, they come, they don't even pray Isha afterward. I'm like, you don't come pray Maghrib, like nobody like banned you from the masjid, bro. Like what, 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 like what kind of like weird constraint inside of the heart does a person have to have in order to be like, I don't understand. Right. Um, and, uh, as you know, as long as I was there, I, I was like, okay, well, if you ban this, I'm leaving. And, uh, but, uh, you know, people have their kind of weird excuses, finish those weird excuses, go back to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. What is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ? This is something that the Rasul ﷺ mandated, it's part of the deen. So some people, honest to God, fine, if you're a good Muslim, you're a bad Muslim, whatever, you know, things are how it is, life is life, not everybody's perfect, people who act perfect are oftentimes more imperfect than the people who know that they're not perfect. Uh, that's fine, you know, people's individual accounts, you know, whatever, it is what it is. What I don't understand and what completely boggles my mind is what is the, um, in particular, the desire for people to sit in positions of authority within the Muslim community while being so starkly against anything having to do with Islam. The Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he gave a mandate that this is something that should happen.
why fight it? You should actually be facilitating it. Why fight it? Uh, and uh, this is one of the reasons why these durus, oftentimes they're very necessary, and the people who's most necessary for them to sit in, they're, they're the ones who are the most frequently absent, and we ask Allah Ta'ala for help. Um, but, uh, you know, feeding feeding the one who's fasting is like, it's a big deal, it's not a small thing. فقالت إني صائمة فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن الصائمة تصلي عليه الملائكة إذا أكل عنده حتى يفرغ أو ربما قال حتى يشبعوا رواه الترمذي وقال حديث حسن أم عمارة الأنصارية رضي الله تعالى عنها There's some discussion amongst the muhaddithun as to uh, who exactly, what the name of Um Ammara is. And uh, um, the khulasa is that some of the muhaddithun, they said it was two different, there are two different women with, from the Ansar with this uh, kunya. But uh, Hafiz ibn Abdul Bar and Hafiz uh, 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 ibn Hajar, they say that the both of them, they're the same person. And uh, 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 she is the grandmother of Habib bin Zayd, radiallahu ta'ala anha, anhu. And uh, um, her name is Nusayba. She, uh, um, ta'ala anha, from her fadail is that she was there as a uh, uh, to aid the Muslim army in the Battle of Uhud. And uh, um, her uh, and uh, she uh, was present at the second Bayatul Aqaba, the Bayah seventy. So it's a maqam that the original Ansar عنهم, that accepted Islam before the Prophet وسلم, came to uh, Mecca Mukarrama. Uh, she was one of them. And uh, uh, she also uh, uh, was there at the Bay'atul Ridwan, which is the uh, oath of allegiance to follow the Prophet وسلم, when they went uh, for the Umratul Qadha, uh, when they were blocked from making Umrah by the uh, mushrikun and had to return the next year which is Im- immortalized in the book of Allah Ta'ala in the um, Surah Al-Fatih She was from those people from that bay'ah uh, that under that tree they took the oath of allegiance with the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Allah Ta'ala bore witness to him being pleased with them and she also went out uh, uh, um, and uh, uh, um, she also went out in the Battle of Yamama. The Battle of Yamama was the battle in which the uh, Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam his com- his companions went to fight the after shortly after the Rasul sallallahu alaihi passing, his companions went to fight Tulaihatul um, Asadi and Musaylimatul Kadhab, the the false prophets of uh, um, Rabi'ah that uh, um, gave battle in a place called Yamama, uh, which is the fort- fortification of Banu Hanifa. First, they fought the battle in front of the fortress, and then when they got beaten, they had to go inside the fortress, and then the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum uh, um, brought them out. So uh, she treated uh, 11, or tended to 11 wounded uh, companions radiallahu anhum uh, in, that, uh, in that time. And she lost a hand in that in that battle. She herself was wounded and injured, and she lost a hand. May Allah subhanahu wa taala 
give her uh, Jannah and a high maqam in this world and the hereafter and like that everybody who uh, sacrifices something for the sake of Allah Ta'ala. Uh, and so she's a, a person of great virtue from amongst the companions radiallahu ta'ala anhum. It's interesting uh, as a tangential note that uh, today was the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal, the battle cry in the um, in the battle of Yamama was Wa Muhammada. That the companions radiallahu ta'ala anhum were so offended by the false claim of prophethood of Tulayha and, and Musaylama that uh, that their battle cry on that day was Wa Muhammada, that Allah help us, give us madad and give us victory through the haqq of the nubuwa and the khatm al of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa The idea being that the expression of love of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa takes many forms. The highest form is that of uh, struggle and sacrifice. Uh, in serving his deen and in following his, uh, following his sunnah, and there are other forms as well, and we, uh, we, you know, we we honor those forms as well. So she, uh, it's narrated uh, in Tirmidhi that the Prophet entered uh, her house, and he, uh, meaning he was invited over, and so he he, he ent- when he entered her house, she put forth uh, something for him to eat. And she says, uh, she, she put forth something for him to eat. And he also said to her, why don't you eat from it as well? And uh, uh, she said, I'm fasting. And the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he said that the person who's fasting, uh, the angels will recite a particular benediction on, on that person uh, if they have to be patient with others eating around them until the people who are eating are done. And so this Salat al-Mala'ika, uh, is described uh, as the invocation of blessings and in particular the dua to Allah Ta'ala that Allah forgive such a person their sins. Now, uh, you know, what does it mean that an angel makes dua for you? Generally, if you ask someone for help, they say, hey, can I have $5? They say, no, but I'll make dua for you. Like, well, thanks a lot, buddy. You know, but th- that we shouldn't, A, we shouldn't have that attitude. Second of all, um, the dua of the angels in particular, the expression means what? Is that Allah Ta'ala created them without sin. Allah Ta'ala created them without blame and without fault. And so the idea that they're making dua for you, intertwined with that in order to understand what it is, the idea is that what their dua will be answered. That Allah Ta'ala will accept their dua. And uh, and so this is, this is a way of saying, it's a uh, um, elegant way of saying that uh, the person who is patient with those eating around them while they're fasting, that this is a reason for Allah forgiving them. And mashallah, lucky us in, um, uh, in America that, you know, people don't fast generally. And, uh, you know, they eat left and right around us all the time. And uh, we get so much uh, reward. And this is the fadl of Allah Ta'ala that had it not been on us, you know, we could have been the ones eating and not fasting. Uh, but this is an honor Allah Ta'ala gave us uh, between uh, between the backs of other people who are mahroom, who are deprived. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give it to them as well. Ameen. وعن أنس رضي الله تعالى عنه أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم جاء إلى سعد بن عبادة رضي الله عنه فجاء بخبز وزيت فأكل ثم قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أفطر عندكم الصائمون وأكل طعامكم الأبرار وصلت عليكم الملائكة رواه أبو داود بإسناد صحيح 
Sayyidina Anas bin Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu narrates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went to visit Sa'ad bin Ubada radiallahu ta'ala anhu who was uh, uh, the, 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 one of the chiefs and one of the leading peop, men of uh, Khazraj, uh, the two, uh, one of the two great uh, tribes of the Ansar, one being Os and one being Khazraj. The two were related to each other by, by, by their ancestors, the eponymous ancestors, Os and Khazraj, who were brothers from the same mother, but they had different fathers. Um, their 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 ancestor, her name was Qayla, so they're the Aulad Qayla, uh, Qayla too, and so they were they were brothers, but from different fathers, same mother but different fathers. Uh, at any rate, so the uh, Khazraj, which was numerically the larger of the two, um, Saad bin Muadha, uh, Saad bin Ubada Afwan was uh, the uh, was a chieftain of the Khazraj. And he was a wealthy man and he was known to be a very generous man. The Rasul sallallahu alayhi came to him once and the Rasul sallallahu alayhi what did he give them to eat? He gave them bread and oil. Now bread and oil is not like the biggest feast in the world. Even in those days, you know, they used to slaughter animals. They used to, you know, cook, you know, big feasts and things like that. And so one of the things that the ulama, they mention is that, that if someone comes and visits, to give them whatever's ready, whatever's prepared and whatever you can give easily. There's nothing wrong with that. As a guest, you should not see anything wrong with that. And as a host, you should also not see anything wrong with that. What's the benefit of it? The benefit is, is that if we make visiting one another easy, then we'll visit each other more often. Whereas if we make the kalluf that somebody came, you, know, you have to do this, then you have to do that, and you have to spend all this money, etc., etc. And until that happens, you know, like I don't feel honored as a guest and until that happens I don't feel uh, as a host that I've done my duty and I'm apologizing 50 times and this and that then what will happen it makes it very painful and annoying to visit one another and people just stop visiting one another which is not a good thing uh, this is one of the sicknesses of the age uh, that we live in that people are very disconnected with one another and it's one of the reasons also mentally we're ill that we don't visit with one another we don't see one another we don't uh, um, go to those uh, occasions where uh, uh, we can talk to one another, that we can, you know, exchange ideas and uh, lighten our grief, etc., etc. Uh, it's spiritually also a reason that people are ill. Why? Because things like going to the masjid, things like going to visit your brother when he's sick or to console people when they're down or, you know, to help somebody or to seek advice from somebody or visit one of the ulama or ashraf, visit one of your elders visit one of the people of fadila and virtue from the qawm. These are all reasons mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ for a person to be forgiven. And when your sins are forgiven, it's not just something like a nondescript thing that will happen on the Day of Judgment, that a person will uh, uh, will, will benefit from on, on the Day of Judgment. And until then, it's just like, you know, uh, uh, you don't see it, taste it, smell it, touch it. Rather, it's a feeling you have inside of your heart as well, that you feel clean inside of your heart. Whereas people who are not forgiven, the wasakh and the, the, the kind of dirty state of that being, which catches up with everybody, Muslim and uh, otherwise, if you don't have a chance to clean yourself from it, you feel disturbed. You just feel disturbed and perturbed from it. It doesn't let you sleep at night. It doesn't make you, let you be happy. It doesn't let you meet people with happiness, etc., etc. Uh, and so... Uh, this is something that the commentators mentioned that khubz and zayt, that bread and, and, and oil to, to dip the bread in. Uh, although, you know, the oil they had was uh, real olive oil, it wasn't the kind of fake.
Italian mafia stuff that we have nowadays. It's like a whole scam in America. It's very difficult to find like real olive oil. Most of what's like labeled as olive oil is something else that they put like smell in or whatever, and they t- you take it to the lab. It's it's m- much of it is just fake. So that was actually more nutritious and better. So don't just like you know say hey, looks this and I put out like Wonder Bread and crisp you know like canola oil or whatever in front of a person you probably shouldn't eat that stuff yourself anyway neither the wonder bread nor the canola oil have you ever seen a canola before right because it doesn't exist it's like something fake it's not like actually something you should be eating but the point is is that they had you know it's still it's not it's not like a, a big walima or anything and so he put it out and the rasul sallallahu was happy with it and he was also happy to put it out as well uh, um, he says that the, he put it out for them for them to eat for him to eat sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam made dua for him. I mean, he was pleased with him, and he made dua for him. He says, "May the people who fast come and open their fast with you." This is a dua for somebody, right? Not like, oh, damn it, all these like fasting hobos came and they expect someone to eat. No, it's an honor. It's an honor. It's a shut off of of. Uh, of the nobility of a qom, that this is how, how their honor is increased, is what is that? How many how many people who fasted did he feed? How many poor people did they feed? How many people did they help out? How many people did they teach? How many people did they give good advice to, etc., etc.? Um, this is as opposed to nowadays, where we think of somebody as being a big shot if they have like a ridiculous house or if they have a ridiculous overpriced car. What it's all bakwas, it's all nonsense. First of all, it's something that they theoretically enjoy. Um, not you. So why should you look up to another person uh, for something like that? But it's part of the deception of uh, of the stupidity nowadays. That the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was the most powerful man in Medina Munawwara and he was one of the poorest. Not because of a lack of opportunity, but because he spent on his family and on the Ummah, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He spent on his Ummah. And after him, said Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu was from amongst the poorest. Again, not because of lack of opportunity, but because he spent on people. After him, said Umar radiallahu anhu. Again, not because of lack of opportunity, but because he used to give. Uh, he used to. He was honored by people because he gave in such a way that nobody else, everyone else knew, we're not able to give like that. Um, and he honored giving more than receiving. Interestingly enough, Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu was a, a, a wealthy man, but at the same time, he gave more than anybody else gave. He gave so much, he gave more than anybody else gave. To the point where, where the Rasul وسلم, informed him before his death that one day the people are going to assassinate you in zulm. And everybody was like surprised, like how, how could this even happen? How could this even happen? And the assassins of Sayyidina Uthman ta'ala anhu, I just read yesterday from the tail end of the irshad of uh, Imam al-Haramain Juwaini, Ghazali's sheikh. He has a section at the end about imama, about the uh, uh, khilafah and things like that. And so uh, he had very not good things to say about those people. He named them. He said these people were like nobodies, like they're riffraff. He goes that 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 it's there's no difference of opinion that they they had no right to do what they did, and that they themselves deserve to be killed for like such a horrible thing that they did. Um, but the point is, is what he spent more than anybody else did uh, in the path of Allah Taala, and uh, that was why people people honored them and loved them. Uh, and uh, this is a disease, a sickness to look up to people because of how much money they spend on themselves. And it just, it doesn't really make sense. And to be honest with you, we should despise such people. We should despise such people. Uh, of course, there's a limit to how much you despise a person because people, a lot of outputs them in fitna and things like that. Some people fail tests. We also fail tests in our life, right? 
but in as much as that particular lifestyle way of living spending more and more money on stupid things that you don't need uh, on yourself it's not something to look up to and uh, you know it's like for example if you see somebody on the street that has no arms and no legs you don't despise the person in the sense that okay like you know they're a human being at the end of the day right um, but you also it would be silly for if someone said hey would you like to be like that you, no of course not if you said yes you'd be an idiot Allah Ta'ala chose to test that person in a certain way and there are certain choices they only are good when Allah makes them if anybody else made them that person would be like out of their mind and we wouldn't accept it from anybody else except for from Allah Ta'ala because of Allah Ta'ala being unlike his creation otherwise uh, nobody nobody wants to be that way nobody should want to be that way it doesn't make sense for anybody to want to be that way and uh, you know this is the same thing that a person who's given uh, wealth and a person who's given uh, you know uh, power and a person who's given fame and all of these things they don't use it except for to ingratiate themselves this is like basically like the human version of a pig it's not a good thing it's not a good place to be and so sure that person may make toba when later on and then they'll go make hajj and they'll whatever and allah forgive them we ask allah to forgive everybody who dies on the ummah of the prophet even bad people you know from the haq of la ilaha illallah if not for any other reason then if allah forgives them then inshallah he'll forgive us as well right so there's some interest self-interest in it but the point is is that when looked at looked in a vacuum that hal it's not a good hal to be in a person should despise it a person should ask allah ta'ala for protection that i should become like a pig like that that you just keep eating keep consuming keep consuming keep spending keep spending keep spending and uh, you don't have any care or concern for anybody else such people are like a cancer uh, on society right what is a cancer a cancer is a tissue serves no beneficial function to the body but it keeps consuming its uh, its uh, resources and getting bigger and bigger and uh, uh, you know one day it will cause the death of the entire body altogether there's so many ajib like weird uh, 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 you know parallels in our society nowadays the whole like the the alphabet you know community QRSTUV community right it's like fine do you think that like being gay is like invented like 20 years ago or 60 years ago in America mashallah our Muslim countries they, they, trust me they've been doing it for a long time and it's they're actually far more advanced if you can call it that in, in some of these things they have a culture of centuries and millennia from before Islam even that they practice these things these countries we come from subcontinent Central Asia etc they're infamous for these things but at the end of the day it's not an identity that people advocate for why because even the people doing it understand how if everybody were to do this you know society is going to collapse Right? In America, when a man and woman get married and get tax breaks, it's because it's hard to raise a family. What's the problem when you don't have, if you don't raise a family, you don't have children, right? Within 100 years, your entire nation state collapses. It becomes vulnerable to its enemies. This is a problem. This is one reason China is not really all that big of a threat to the world. Although they're doing horrible things right now, but they're not all that big of a threat because nobody wants to have children anymore. They're, they're already suffering from demographic collapse. They're already suffering from demographic collapse in Japan. They're already suffering from demographic collapse in Korea. They're already suffering from demographic collapse in Europe. That's why everybody's so afraid of Muslims. Not because Muslims are strong, organized, smart, 
you know, they haven't been those things as a society for a very long time, to be honest with you, in any way that could threaten any of those countries. But what is it? Something very simple, right? Az-zawaju min sunnati. Al-nikahu min sunnati, afwan. That the Rasulullah said, the nikah is from my sunnah. Chalo, we'll get married. You know, Muslim, Muslims sometimes are not really all that smart or articulate or like hardworking or any of these things. Some, Many are, but some of us aren't. So at least we can get married, right? <laughs> at least we have like a couple of children. That in and of itself, it protects us. Whereas on the flip side, what are we doing? A man marries a man. Who who has the wali? Who gives the mahir to who? God knows, you know, what does that even mean? Does it even mean anything? And on top of that, we're going to give them tax breaks for it. That, a per, you know, a husband and wife save money in order to buy a house so they can raise a family. It's efficient. You have like five people consuming like uh, in one address and consuming, you know, food on one bill. And it's efficiency, actually. And it provides something for the next generation. Now you have two people, you know, basically consuming like uh, as much as like three people consume normally. It's going to cause everyone to. It's going to cause society basically to rot from the inside out. Right. Uh, but the problem is, if you don't look at these things from the correct lens, uh, you won't understand that because people will be like, it's my choice. So at some point or another, that's fine. First of all, put that issue aside. It's my choice. At some point, our choices for ourselves, they impact other people. If a man is a father, a head of a household, a woman is a mother, she's a head of a household versus somebody who's like lives alone in the forest. Okay. Lives alone in the forest. They say, oh, look at this mushroom. Let me like, you know, take it and see what happens. Right. You're alone in the forest. Worst case scenario, you know, you'll trip out and then some animal will eat you and it's like, you know, it's a dumb move, but it's over. If you're a mother of like seven children, what's going to happen? You made the choice, seven people die with you. If you're the president of a country, your choices are different than if you're just a private citizen. They impact other people differently. At any rate, coming back to this, uh, 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 you know, this issue, the issue is that being a generous person and giving to other people uh, uh, mashallah, it's something, it's a civilizational value that we have. And you can very clearly say that if somebody doesn't, for well, one aspect of it is feeding the people who fast, uh, which also makes fasting now in demand as a civilizational value. But in general, if you see somebody who's living a life or you see yourself living a life that you're no longer able to give to people, then you have to wonder what's the point of this? Is this now become cancer? Is it good growth? Are you like going to the gym, working out and getting stronger that I can you know, lift more weight this week than I could last week? Is it that type of growth or is it the type of growth that like is going to send you into the ground like, you know, in a couple of months? Uh, and sadly, people have lost the ability to differentiate between the two of them. And that's why our, our society is unraveling at a rate that I think many of us are in denial about. Uh, um, but uh, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen any uh, less fast or uh, with, with any less uh, dramatic and traumatic of effects. And Allah knows best. Kitab al-Itikaf, Babu Fadl al-Itikafi, when Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Qala kan Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ya'takifu al-Ashra al-Awakhira min Ramadana, Muttafaqun alayhi, Wa'an Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, Anna al-Nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Kana ya'takifu al-Ashra al-Awakhira min Ramadana, Hatta tawaffahu Allahu ta'ala, Thumma a'takafa azwajuhu ba'dahu, Muttafaqun alayhi, Wa'an Abi Hurairah radiallahu anhu, Qala kan al-Nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ya'takifu fi kulli Ramadana, Ashra ta'ayyamin, Falamma kana al-Aamu al-Ladhi qubitha fihi, Ittakafa ishirina yawman, Rawahu al-Bukhari, 
So the chapter on Atikaf is connected to the chapter on fasting. Uh, why? Uh, because it's connected to Ramadan, and Ramadan is the month of fasting. Not necessarily because you cannot do Atikaf in other days of the year. You can do Atikaf on every day that it's lawful to fast. So there's no i'tikaf on Eid al-Fitr or on Eid al-Adha or the three days after it. But uh, uh, but because it's connected to fasting, according to the Maliki position, which is the hardest or the harshest position out of all of them, that the i'tikaf is not valid if you're not there for a minimum 24 hours. And you have to fast in the masjid. Otherwise, it's not valid. Uh, whereas in the Hanafi school, uh, the the Sunnah mode of itikaf is to is to do it that way. That's the optimal mode of doing it. But a person can do for less than that and also not fast if they're for a fraction of time that the fast is not contained. And the other schools, I believe, uh, are, are like that, more lenient. But all of them agree that the Sunnah, the Masnoon way, the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the only way that he made itikaf or the prime way he made itikaf at any rate, is uh, is what is that a person should be fasting and he would make it in the month of Ramadan. Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar, may Allah ta'ala be pleased with both of them, said that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would make i'tikaf in the last 10 days of Ramadan, narrated both by Bukhari and Muslim, and also narrated by both uh, Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. She said that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would make i'tikaf in the last 10 days of Ramadan until Allah ta'ala uh, uh, took him. Uh, and then after uh, his passing, his uh, wives, the mothers of the believers, they used to make i'tikaf after him as well. And uh, Sayyidina Abu Huraira, he said that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he used to make i'tikaf uh, every Ramadan uh, for 10 days, meaning the last 10 days of Ramadan. And when it was the last year of his life, the year that uh, Allah his soul was taken by Allah, um, he made i'tikaf for 20 days uh, and it's also narrated uh, it's also narrated by Bukhari and so there's a couple of things that are that I wanted to mention uh, in the bundling of these three hadith which compromise the or that comprise the entire uh, book on uh, i'tikaf in Riyadh al-Salihin one has to do with why did why did the rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam do i'tikaf for 20 days in the last year of his life. And it's a confluence of a number of things. One is that it was the last year of his life he wanted to increase uh, his devotions uh, in it because of the nearing of the end of his uh, term, which he knew of from before, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The second is this, is that there was an incident that occurred in one of the years of uh, his uh, Mubarak uh, life in Medina Munawwara where he set he, he had like a small tent pitched in the masjid basically for his uh, for his i'tikaf like they do in many masajid they put up like screens and things like that so a person can have some isolation and uh, when one of the azwaj mutahharat one of the mothers of the believers saw she Pitched her tent, she pitched a tent in the masjid as well to make i'tikaf. And then the other saw and said, like, you know, like, she's, you know, like, there was some competition there. You know, I don't want to attribute motives to people who were better people than us. 
But at the same time, they were human beings. And the Rasul Sallallahu himself noticed what's going on. And it's a famous hadith of Al-Birra Turidna Bihada. Uh, he said to all of them, he says, all of you really, was it because of your piety that you, you wanted to be pious that you all did this? Meaning that he sensed also there was some competition in them amongst them for his time uh, in all pitching their tents. So he took his tent down and he went and they also took theirs down and they went. Now the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, one of the, one of the uh, uh, um, things about him is that when he did a, a deed uh, continuously, uh, it became fard on him. So, what's mentioned is that one of the one of the opinions of the ulama is that in the last year of his life, the reason he did twenty days of i'tikaf was what was in order to make up those ten days that he he left in order to make zajar in order to uh, uh, deter the wives of the Prophet ﷺ for making i'tikaf for this reason. And this comes to another point. There's a discussion about a woman's i'tikaf. How does it happen? So in the Hanafi school, they say a woman makes i'tikaf in her own home. And uh, in the other schools, I, I shouldn't say in the other schools, in the Maliki school and the rest of the, the Shafi'i and the Hanabila, you can go ask their mashaykh what their opinions are. But in the Maliki school, the itikaf only happens in a masjid. It doesn't happen at home. Uh, for lack of really any precedent for it. Because it's a legal, uh, it's a legal uh, uh, um, in the fiqhi sense, it's a, it has like a legal definition, uh, which is there in the Quran, وَأَنْتُمْ fil masajid the the qayd of a person making itikaf in a masjid is there in the Quran. And uh, uh, so you have to be in a masjid for it. And so one of the reasons the Messenger of Allah وسلم, wished to deter the women from making itikaf is that women really sh- shouldn't make itikaf if there's not a necessity. And have women then throng the masjid if the, all the azwaj mutahharat were making itikaf in the masjid. And then all the women of Medina Munawwara make itikaf in the masjid. There's some issues there. There's some problems. Um, in terms of safety and security, etc. And so for that reason, we say it's not sunnah for a woman to make i'tikaf. However, if she makes a vow of i'tikaf, it has to be fulfilled in the masjid. Like a person, imagine somebody makes another, says that, Ya Allah, if I get this job, I swear I'll make hajj 40 times, right? And then you get the job, now, what do you, now you have to go make hajj 40 times. Well, can I sacrifice a goat or fat? No, now go make hajj 40 times. Who told you to do that in the first place? So if a person makes another, then they have to fulfill it. Uh, and it becomes fard on them, even though it's not fard on anybody else. So a person should be careful before making another, uh, before making a vow. Uh, but if they made it, it's then binding. So if a woman makes another, if she makes a vow to make etikaf, then you know that vow has to be fulfilled then. Uh, and that can only be in the masjid. And there will be some difficulty in actually fulfilling its conditions so she has to find a masjid that's safe and secure and a way of being able to fulfill its conditions otherwise otherwise there are other acts of piety that are sunnah for a woman for her to sit in her home even if the malakis don't consider technically to be a for her to sit in her home and pray and you know isolate herself and make devotion and set that time for a devotion is more reward than going to the masjid and making itikaf why because this is a qaida it's a rule in the Sharia that following following the the command of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam an act of obedience always will receive more reward than doing the contrary no matter what the other indicators are. So, for example, the Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam said that the reward of a woman fasting at or sorry praying at home is more than uh, is the most virtuous of prayers. 
So one might say, well, what about all of these rewards that are mentioned for going to Jum'ah for the men? And you can assume that for the woman, because her prayer is explicitly mentioned as being superior at home, that whatever reward the men are getting, she's getting at least that much at home, if not more. Uh, and that's uh, that's what that is, even though we might say it's permissible for a woman to go and pray Jum'ah at the masjid. There's nothing wrong with that. Maybe there's a benefit, maybe she wants to hear the khutbah and learn something, or maybe she needs to get out of the house, maybe she wants to visit the masjid because of some other reason or whatever. You know, that's different. But the point is, is that for her to make iltizam to the, the sunnah, to stick with the sunnah, and pray at home, it will receive more reward, even if that reward isn't explicitly mentioned, like the reward of the men for uh, praying uh, Jum'ah in the masjid, for example, is mentioned. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's that's the second thing. The third thing is this, is that the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, one of the functions in Ramadan that that uh, were carried out by him, is that this angel Jibreel Alayhi Salaam, Sayyidina Jibreel Alayhi Salaam, would come to him and review the Qur'an that was revealed thus far with him. And so it being the last year of his life, he reviewed it with him twice. Why? Because the time to go was near. And the Qur'an is from the, is the greatest amana, the greatest trust Allah Ta'ala gave the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So in order to do that, that second review, uh, perhaps there's a connection between that and spending more time in the masjid and cut, away, cut off and away from the affairs of, of daily life. And it's possible that all of those things happen at the same time for a reason. Perhaps the double re- revision is because the Rasul Sallallahu was going to be there anyway in some part or whatever. The point is it works out. This is an explanation of this uh, seemingly an- anomalous uh, 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 practice in the last year of the Prophet Sallallahu And why it is that we don't consider fa- uh, i'tikaf for 20 days to be a sunnah. That it's not the regular practice of the Rasul Sallallahu If a person wants, they can make i'tikaf for the whole Ramadan. That's fine. Some people do that as well. There's nothing wrong with it. But the sunnah, the most reward is what? Is in those uh, 9 to 10 days at the uh, end of Ramadan. Inshallah, we, uh, with that we finish the Kitab al-Itikaf as well. And then the next chapter has to do with Hajj. I think it's better rather than starting a complete new topic. We shall, inshallah, end a couple of minutes early, inshallah. And in case anybody has any questions. You can ask Sallallahu ta'ala ala rasulihi Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.